Good morning. How would it change the way you live if you knew that you were invulnerable? If you knew without a doubt that no person, no government, no army, no illness, no earthly creature, and no unearthly creature was capable of depriving you of life. And what if that confidence went even further? (laughs) What if you could be 100% certain, absolutely certain, that no matter what injury or pain or shame or insult that any of those people or things could possibly inflict upon you, none of them would be even remotely capable of keeping you from being richly, extravagantly blessed right now. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, welcome to your life. You may not recognize that as your life, but it is. And it's the life that God calls you to actually live and actually experience day by day. In the verses that we are considering this morning, Peter tells us how we as the people redeemed by God are to live in the light of the real life and real blessing that belong to us as God's chosen people. It is a life joyfully filled with extending that same life and blessing to others all around us. Peter starts in this passage by telling us what we are called to do to bless others. And then he unveils the basis for that doing. And then finally, he's going to explain to us how to experience that blessing right now, day by day. It would be impossible to overstate the importance of the first command that Peter gives to us as he explains how we are to bless others. He says, be harmonious. Let us all be harmonious. And the word that he uses here for harmonious, it literally means be same-minded. It does not mean that we're supposed to be Stepford Christians all falling mindlessly into line with one way of thinking and one way of acting in all matters. But it certainly does mean that we are to think and we are to act together as one when it comes to carrying out our mission, our assignment from Christ as the people of God. And what is that assignment that's supposed to unite us? Well, Peter told us in chapter 2, verse 9, that as God's chosen, set-apart people, as His holy nation, His royal priesthood, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. But it's not merely a proclamation with words. If you've been paying attention as we've gone through the previous passages, it's very clear that that the witness to Christ to which Peter calls us is not just about words. It is a proclamation through words that is validated by the way we live. Paul makes this very clear in his epistle to the Philippian saints. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a way that's worthy of your message. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's the gospel that unifies us. And then he goes on a couple of verses later in beginning of chapter 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what's that purpose? The advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many, many differences between us as believers that should remain just as they are. Differences that are useful in the hands of God when we approach them in a godly manner. Harmony in an orchestra happens when many different instruments are playing the same song in the same key at the same tempo. The clarinet's part is not the same. It's not the same notes as the the notes being played by the French horn. But when you put their parts together with all the other parts, the result is a single unified piece of music that is far richer and far more beautiful than what could be produced by any one instrument. The single beautifully orchestrated symphony that we present together to the world is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God uses our differences to produce that symphony. The proclamation of Christ by our words and by our deeds is the shared mission that unites us and that must unite us always. So first, we are to be harmonious, working together as one in the furtherance of the gospel. Secondly, we are to be sympathetic. Now, there are certain words that have a very different connotation in the Bible than they do in common usage within our culture. Words like hope, peace, joy. The more familiar that we become with all that the Bible reveals about God's character and God's way of doing things, the more we realize how utterly uncommon are God's definitions of these commonly used words. Sympathize is a word that belongs in that list. It comes, like many English words, from its original Greek. It's, they say it's transliterated, where the English word sounds just like the Greek. Sympatheo is the Greek word. First part of that means together, and the second part means suffer. Biblical sympathy is a suffering together with the people of God. And that, of course, gives this command a very strong connection with the dominant theme of this whole epistle, which is about seeing and dealing with the suffering of this present life in the brilliant light of our living hope. We respond to suffering very differently than those who do not know Christ. Now, this is not how the average person or even the average Christian, in my experience, understands sympathy to the world's way of thinking, which I think persists in much of the church, if you sympathize with another person's suffering, that not only means that you understand at some level what he or she feels, and you come alongside him as a friend and put your arm around him, it also means that you accept how he chooses to respond to that suffering. 
For the most part, the world demands that you never question or challenge how another person chooses to handle suffering. But biblical, godly sympathy is not an undiscerning acceptance of whatever response someone chooses to have towards suffering, especially when that someone is a believer. Most responses to suffering are wrong responses. And the world isn't even willing to consider such a statement. Even to suggest something like that to the world's way of thinking is horribly judgmental and self-righteous and grossly uncaring. But Peter isn't writing these things so that the churches can keep doing things exactly the way they've been doing. He's writing these things to shake us up and to set things right so that we will be useful for Christ. And until the Holy Spirit shakes us up and sets us right, our default response to pain and suffering will be a wrong response that violates God's character and that violates our calling. Now, I know that some of us in this room have already experienced that spiritual shakedown. Sometimes it's more like a smackdown. (laughs) And you get this. But I suspect others among us are not quite there yet. When I was still a baby in Christ, uh, first year of college, I read a statement from Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, that I'll never forget. It forever changed my understanding of godly sympathy. Now, I don't remember his exact words, but I certainly remember the gist of what he said. He said, for us who belong to Christ, sympathy never means patting someone on the back for their unbelief. Sympathy never means patting someone on the back for their unbelief. Now, let's say I have a brother in Christ whose wife treats him like her worst enemy pretty much all the time. The household is filled with bitterness and anger, He comes to me in tears and he says he just can't keep living this way. It's tearing him apart. It's tearing his kids apart. And he has become convinced that God would have him put an end to this relentless strife in his home by getting out of his marriage to his monster of a wife. And let's just say that being the sympathetic guy that I am, I come along and I put my arm around him. And I say, brother... I understand how you feel. It's impossible for anyone to live in that kind of a situation. God would never expect you or your kids to stay in such horrible emotional turmoil day in and day out. It's time for a fresh start. You need to leave that one. God does not call that sympathy. The world does. God doesn't. It's probably a lot closer to what God calls false prophecy. (laughs) Speaking presumptuously in the name of God, that which God has not declared. Deuteronomy 18. Now I want to clarify something at this point that I said when we were in the passage directed to wives in verses 1 through 6 of this same chapter. If a woman is being physically abused by her husband, I do not believe that God requires her to remain in that house with her abuser. But that is not even remotely the same thing as telling her to divorce her husband. 
It is not the same thing as telling her that it's okay with God for her to renege on her covenant promise before God to be devoted to her husband for better or for worse. Temporarily, putting physical distance between her and a husband whose anger is out of control is pretty straightforward. But we need to understand that when Peter wrote this, married women had little or no option to simply walk away forever from such a danger. In many cases, that would leave a woman destitute and struggling for her next meal. And I can guarantee you that slaves in Peter's day had no option whatsoever for escaping the abuses of an evil master, not even for a single day. Believers then and believers now do not get to tell other believers that God somehow owes it to us to have lives that are protected from abusive masters or abusive husbands or any other kind of suffering. But what we here, believers, what we must absolutely do in such situations is we must suffer together with one another. We don't just take an abused wife into our house for one night and then the next morning send her back to her, to her house and wait to see what happens. We enter into her suffering with her. What I'm about to say is not an elder-approved policy statement, so don't take it as such. It's a scenario that I hope will prompt us to think a little bit about what it means to put godly sympathy to work in that kind of a situation because we, many of us in this body have encountered that kind of a situation. In addition to doing whatever our governing authorities require where physical abuse has occurred, we need to make every effort to sit down with that husband on God's behalf and demand his repentance. We offer and require that he come and meet with one or two trusted men from our church. Or we'll come to him. We make it crystal clear to him that neither his wife nor he is going to be left alone in dealing with any future instances of his out-of-control temper. Both of them will have the phone numbers of believing couples who are willing and ready to intervene quickly if he starts to lose it again. Now, I understand, of course, that we cannot make either a wife or a husband in that situation allow our involvement. But we must do all that we can before God to enter into the suffering of that relationship of those two people. Always speaking God's truth to them and always loving them until it hurts. When it puts us at risk, even if the husband is big enough to break your neck with one arm tied behind his back. I've been there. That is how godly sympathy works. And when the church does that, Powerful things happen by the hand of God. 
let's another scenario. Let's say you have a dear friend, a believer, who's on her second extended round of chemotherapy that has reasserted its uh, for cancer that has reasserted itself after two years of remission. The church all celebrated that remission, praised God for for dealing with that cancer, and now it's back. You watch her become more and more fearful as the weeks pass by, and at the same time, she's becoming increasingly insistent that God is going to deliver her from this illness. You realize that she's clinging to that expectation as if God's faithfulness completely depended on Him delivering her from her cancer like He did the last time. You believe it would be insensitive and uncaring for you to point out to her that God never promised to heal all our physical infirmities until we stand before Him with our sin put away forever. You don't want to jeopardize the long-standing friendship that you've had with her, so you just put your arm around her and you agree with her that God is certainly going to heal her. I can't count the number of times I've seen Christians do exactly that. In In the name of sympathy, they are holding God to a promise that He never made. That's not speaking the truth in love, and that is not what God calls sympathy. Now, if, I, if you think I'm spending too much time on this, that's tough, because I, I believe this is critically important, and it is an area in which we frequently violate the character of God and the promise of God. Brothers and sisters, if the day ever comes when I or someone I dearly love is dying of a ravaging illness, And if I appear to be clinging to the notion that God's character somehow requires Him to heal that illness, please do not agree with me and call that sympathy. I don't need that kind of imitation sympathy and neither does any other child of God. You're not going to find it here. Instead, put your arm around me and pray in my hearing that if... It will serve God's good and eternal purposes. If it will advance His Son's kingdom, He will heal that illness. And certainly acknowledge that He's perfectly able to do so. But please be sure to pray also, with your arms still around me, that if if it will serve those same unfadingly good and eternal purposes of God better, if it will advance His kingdom, son's kingdom more effectively he will lead me right in the midst of that suffering and pain even to the point of painful death and that he will graciously grant me the eternal sight and the courage to handle that suffering with patient endurance with joy inexpressible and full of glory because I know without a doubt that my God does all things well I know without a doubt that my living hope is untouched by that suffering. And it is certainly untouched by the inevitable death of this decaying body. Brothers and sisters, you and I have nothing to fear from the suffering that we encounter in this life, even if it brings about our death. There's only one who's worthy of our fear. And He loves us. We belong to Him. 
If our version of sympathy does not point our suffering brothers and sisters back to the one who alone makes them overcomers in this painful life, then we need to ditch that crummy imitation of sympathy and we need to suffer together with one another God's way, not our way. Reminding each other always of the very things that Peter declares over and over in this epistle about God's good purposes in suffering. That's godly sympathy. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. This one's a little easier. To be brotherly means pretty much what it sounds like. (laughs) It means to love your fellow saints as your brothers and sisters because that's who they are. It brings to mind Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Isn't that great? That puts the wonderful assignment of brotherhood right into the context that Peter's talking about here, doesn't it? A brother is always geared up to enter the battle with his friend. That's how we are called to be toward one another. The child of God sitting beside you in the pew, if that person is a child of God, is more a brother or sister to you than an unbeliever who shares your parents' DNA. Make no mistake about that. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. Be kind-hearted. This is the same word Paul uses in Ephesians 4.32 when he says, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That's the word, tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He ties tenderheartedness with forgiveness. Now Peter isn't just talking here about being a nice guy. He's talking about hearts that have been tenderized by the kindness and compassion and forgiveness that we have already received from God in Christ. And that we still receive daily. Hearts that are made eager by the grace of God to show that same kindness and compassion and forgiveness toward others because we love to show Christ to others. If your heart is quick to anger and slow to forgive, if you find yourself much quicker to spot the sin and hypocrisy in others than you do in yourself, if your heart is not tender toward your fellow saints and toward those around you who are lost in the darkness, then go home today or as soon as you can, turn off all the input and all the gadgets and prayerfully set your mind and heart on what God says you deserve from His hand and what He did for you at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's great tenderizer for our tough and gristled hearts. That leads directly to the next characteristic of godliness to which Peter calls us. Be humble-minded. Without a humble mode of the mind and the heart, all other attributes of godliness commanded in this verse are just window dressing. 
They're just external behaviors that have no internal reality or power. Until God humbles us before Him, there is no such thing as these other attributes in our lives. Humility before God makes us humble in all our dealings with our fellow humans. Biblical humility, and I think most of you know this, biblical humility is not self-deprecation or self-loathing. Jesus was the perfect example of godly humility, and you'd have a really hard time making the case that he had a low opinion of himself. Humility isn't about your view of yourself at all, good or bad. Godly humility is not about knowing who you are. It's about knowing whose you are. If you've been spending your time trying to find yourself, it's time to get lost. Biblical humility is a denial of self because you are owned by the one who died to make you his. And biblical humility is commanded. It's not an option. Verse 9 is where the rubber meets the road. (laughs) If you're just pretending to actually care about the characteristics of godliness commanded in verse 8, your facade will come tumbling down when real life puts verse 9 to the test. What do you actually do when you are treated horribly by another person? This is a hugely important recurring theme throughout Scripture. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's too low a standard. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now let me read the heart of that verse once again and please listen carefully. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That is how Jesus showed off the character of His Father. And that is how we as the ambassadors and image bearers of Christ show Him off to one another and to the world. We love our enemies. We pray from the heart for the well-being of those who persecute and abuse and malign us, the way Peter will describe in chapter 4. Romans 12.14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And that's exactly what Peter is commanding of us right here. When you're cursed by others in word and in deed, bless and curse not. All the behaviors commanded in verse 8 fall under this central command to bless. At the end of verse 9, Peter puts God's rationale for what he's requiring of us right out on the table for us to behold. God's basis for his appeal to us to live lives that bless others, even when others curse us, 
is that we who deserve only to be cursed are now destined in Christ to inherit a blessing. The reason we must bless those who curse us is because God has eternally blessed us who cursed Him. I strongly encourage you to go to Bible.org and read Bob Deffenbaugh's message on this same passage. It's the best I've read. In it, Bob presents three biblical bases for God's call to us to return blessing when we receive evil from others. The first is because it is consistent with the character of God. That's what Jesus just said. In order that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that you may display His character. The second reason is because it is consistent with our praise of God. James chapter 3, James says, with this same tongue, we bless God and we curse men who are made in the image of God. He says that cannot stand. See, we bless others because that is fitting to us who are called to bless God in whose image men are made. And then then Bob says, in this context, Peter supplies yet another reason. And that is because it is consistent with our destiny. The logic, Bob says, is very simple. We have been called to inherit a blessing. If we are to live consistently with our calling, then we should be characterized by blessing others. He says, our future destiny determines our present conduct. Our future destiny determines our present conduct. That's what this living hope thing is all about in First Peter. Now, many preachers invert that when they get to this verse. They say our present conduct determines our future destiny. They say this is conditional, that we have been called, that the calling spoken of in this verse is, to never return evil for evil, but to return a blessing instead. That if we honor that calling, then we will inherit the blessing. We will prove ourselves to truly be sons of God. Now that's a whole lot different than saying that the reason we do not return evil for evil, but instead return a blessing is because we have been irreversibly called to inherit a blessing. We bless others now because we know without a doubt that we will be eternally blessed. The language of the verse actually allows for either of those understandings. The first interpretation actually lines up very nicely with chapter 2, verse 29. It clearly says we have been called to follow Christ's example in suffering without returning evil for insult for insult, trusting the one who judges justly. But it's the phrase in verse 9, inherit a blessing, that convinces me that the calling spoken of here is that blessing. If I mentioned before, I think last week, that if you look up the words heir and inheritance in the New Testament epistles, every single time they're talking to Christians, They're talking about something future. They're talking about our future inheritance in Christ. Our inheritance with Christ as fellow heirs. It's amazingly consistent. 
we who belong to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are destined to inherit a blessing. And that inheritance is not up for grabs. It's as certain as certain gets. You know how I know that? Because Peter told us in chapter 1. Flip over, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to the first Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and listen to how Listen to how powerfully, how forcefully Peter presents this promise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. (laughs) I don't think it's possible that Peter could have presented the certainty of our eternal destiny any more forcefully than he does. And it is that very certainty, that calling that makes our hope a living hope, that makes it a hope that actually and radically transforms how we live right here, right now. If you take away that certainty, you take away that which makes our hope transforming, durable, powerful, and useful to God. We bless others even when they curse us because, beloved, we are destined to be forever blessed in Jesus Christ. That destiny is invulnerable. Nobody and no created thing can ever keep us from that destiny. You know Romans 8, right? Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I got the order wrong, but you got the gist. (laughs) That rock-solid confidence frees us up to bless when we are cursed. Nothing else does. There's nothing else that will free us up to do that because there is no guarantee that the curse that someone curls toward us will not hurt or that it will not take our physical lives. But you know what it will not take? What it cannot take? It cannot take our living hope. It cannot take our destiny. It cannot take our relationship with the living God and with the people of the living God. It cannot threaten anything that is eternal that comes from the hand of God. Not at all. In the last three verses of this passage, Peter quotes entirely from Psalm 34. And it's here that he makes the connection between our future hope and our present blessedness. Our destiny of eternal blessing radically changes how we live now. That living hope redefines every part of our lives. But the blessings of being part of the household of God are not all deferred. (laughs) We get some seriously great blessing right now. 
Peter quotes Psalm 34 and, and he explains to us how we get to love life and see good days while we're still right here on this cursed earth. Is there anyone here who doesn't think that sounds good to love life and to see good days? Peter says that's exactly what happens when we actually do what he just commanded us to do. When we refrain our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking guile, when we turn away from evil and we do good for Christ's sake. When we do now that which is demanded in every way by the destiny that we're going to lay hold of later, something really great happens in us and to us right here and right now. We love life and we see good days. We go through our days on this earth knowing that the ears of our God, Peter goes on to say, attend to our prayers. That it is always, always well with our souls. Clearly in this context, Peter is not saying that our obedience to these commands will make our lives easier. Or that we will experience less hardship and pain. The next chapter says quite the opposite. It says that we who truly follow Christ will suffer more, not less. We will be maligned. We will be hated by this world. But we will know in our daily experience what it means to love the life that belongs to us as children of God. And according to Jesus in John 17.3, what is that life? It is that we might personally, intimately know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. It's a relationship. According to Jesus Himself, if you believe the testimony of God the Father concerning His Son, you have already passed out of death into life and that life is eternal. When this body dies, that life just keeps going on. Nobody and nothing can take that life away from you. That's your real life. And that life is invulnerable. Do you love living as a child of God? You should. I long to be absent from this dying body and at home with the Lord. But beloved, I love living as a child of God. I love beholding Him in His Word and beholding Him in His people. I love doing life with my wife, my kids, and you guys. It's not easy, but it's really, really good. God is a good Father. And living as his child is a life that's filled with good days. Read Psalm 103 and look, look at the present tense things that David praises God about, that God gives to us right here. If we ignore God's instruction to us here through Peter and we try to live this life on our own terms, if we focus on protecting ourselves from pain and suffering, avenging the wrongs done to us, and seeking security and fulfillment, in the things this world has to offer, 
we will be turning our backs on that good life. And God will turn his ears away from our prayers. You know why he does that? It's because God has no intention of letting a child of his find fulfillment in a mirage. He will withhold things that we ask of him when those things are not aligned with the living hope that we receive only from him and when they are not aligned with his character. That actually turns out to be a gracious thing for us us who belong to Christ. To the extent, though, that we humbly respond to these gracious commands to do life His way, we can bank on His promise that He will attend to our prayers and He will give us good days until we come to that unspeakably great day when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and see Him as He truly is. On that day, beloved, all of this will have been worth it. Father, We ask that you would pierce our hearts and make us believe that if we do not. All of this, every bit of it, every hurt that we experience this side of your kingdom will will make that kingdom more beautiful to us. And will honor you, will honor our Savior and our Master. That's what we want to be about, Lord. We don't want to face, we don't want to deal with suffering in a way that, that the world looks at and says, <laughs> that's just the way we do it. Help to turn our hearts. Make us people like Peter describes here. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.